0: In the last days of June, 548 A.D., a crowd gathered and grew at the Church of the Holy Apostles in Constantinople. At its head was a splendidly dressed man, middle-aged, clearly noble. Reeling from personal grief and the loss of his staunchest political ally, he numbly lit a candle and the funeral began, and the Byzantine Empire laid to rest their empress. A saint no stranger to sinning, devout to some, diabolical to others, and driven above all else. She was a force of nature made flesh that saw her will imposed on the most powerful men in her empire, including her husband, Justinian I. But she was also a staunch friend to many, loyal to a fault, and dedicated to many causes. To Justinian, she was invaluable. To her enemies, she was terrifying. To her followers, she was indomitable. But beneath all that... She was Theodora of Paphlagonia. I'm not here for the grand schemes, and now neither are you. Long history very short, this is Little Slights, where I discuss the women who lived and died in the shadows cast by history's limelight. Let's talk about the Byzantine phoenix. Theodora's birthplace is disputed by many sources. Chronicler Michael the Syrian recorded her as a native of Mabug Syria. Others named her a Cypriot. For this episode, we have settled on the account in the Patria, a collection of historical works on the Byzantine Empire, which says that Theodora was born around 500 AD in Paphlagonia, a region along the Black Sea of present-day Turkey. Fun fact, that would make Paphlagonia a hotspot for future Byzantine queens and saints named Theodora, as another one would co-rule with husband and son three centuries later. Our Theodora was born to a man named Acacius, a bear trainer in the Hippodrome at Constantinople, her mother was a dancer/slash actress. She was one of three daughters, smack in between eldest Comito and youngest Anastasia. Akashius died when Theodora was around five, and her mother quickly remarried to another animal keeper. This one failed to land the same kind of high-paying job, and to keep a roof over everyone's head and food in their bellies, Theodora's mother began teaching her daughters the tools of her trade: hand gestures, supplications, and above all, appeal. Their first job? to travel to the Hippodrome, full of riotous, probably drunk men, and convince the man in charge there to give their stepfather the job. The three girls succeeded and proved they had a knack for this acting business. Theodora's future was set. In those days, to be an actress was to essentially be a prostitute. Probably because most actresses were prostitutes, including Theodora. Contemporary historian Procopius, author of several works that involved Theodora, often with wildly different portrayals of her character, wrote that Theodora often served low-class brothels before hopping up on stage. By 15, she was the star of the Hippodrome, providing lurid and fascinating performances on stage and throwing wild parties to entertain her many and varied lovers off. Her most famous performance was said to be her starring role in Lita and the Swan, a retelling of the myth of the god Zeus's rape of the titular Leta by transforming into, you guessed it, a swan. That leaves very few blanks to fill in, and I will leave it all to you. In this time, Theodora had a daughter, whose name has now been lost. She took her infant daughter with her when she decided to suddenly leave acting entirely at 16 to take up with a man named Hesibolus, who was the governor of the region now known as Libya. The affair lasted for around four years and saw Theodora leaving her hometown to travel with her lover to North Africa. Hesibolus was cruel and abusive, however, and in 521 he threw her out of his house, Penniless and toting a toddler, Theodora got together enough money to get herself to Alexandria. It was in the deserts near Alexandria that Theodora found a community that would change her life. There lived a group of people who practiced monophysitism, occasionally referred to as myophysitism by historians even though they're different religions. Both are branches of early Christianity, but Monophysites believed Jesus Christ to be purely divine, not human and divine like Orthodox Christians and Myophysites did. The struggle between these two branches had been raging for several decades at this point in history, and would go on for the entirety of Theodora's life and beyond. Theodora embraced the religion wholeheartedly and would fight hard not only for their beliefs but the people and structures that supported monophysitism, spreading its influence in Byzantine and Nubia, often in direct opposition to her friends' and family's wishes to spread the Chalcedonian faith supported by the Byzantine royalty. In 522, however, she was barely into her twenties, alone, and on the road to Antioch, where she would meet with a fellow dancer, Macedonia. Antioch was a powerful city in Syria powerful enough to question the might of Constantinople, capital of the empire. It was a hotbed of spies, and Macedonia might have picked up a little extra work alongside her day job. She got Theodora back into Constantinople, with a respectable job as a wool spinner. She also may have gotten her into contact with a powerful man by the name of Justinian. Justinian was… interesting… Born to a peasant farmer and raised on the fields of present-day Serbia, he was brought by his mother Vigilantia, sister of the Emperor Justin, to the capital at age 11, where he was formally adopted by the king, renamed, and given a formal education to prepare him for the throne. While it's a no-brainer why a woman would be attracted to the future heir of an empire, his attraction to Theodora seemed a bit misplaced. Not only was Justinian 20 years older than her, Theodora had a sordid career, a string of ex-lovers, and a bold, outspoken nature— but that last bit might have been what hooked Justinian, who would come to be known as the emperor who never sleeps during his reign. Theodora's unending energy was a perfect match to his. Her famed beauty didn't hurt either. By 524, she was his full-time mistress, and Justinian made his intentions to marry her very clear to the public and his uncle. There was, however, one slight hang-up. Remember that sordid career I mentioned? Yeah. Yeah. By decree, any man ranked senatorial and above couldn't marry an actress. But before you can say, uh uh-oh, Justinian not only had the law changed, he raised Theodora's status just for good measure. The new law said marriage could be possible between actresses and men above their rank, if so allowed by the emperor, as could those of their daughters. Not only was Theodora in the clear, but her daughter as well, which is a much better wedding gift than a platter, I think. There was some protest from the royal family— the loudest from the Empress Euphemina, a former concubine herself who maybe didn't like some upstart copy-pasting her own origin story. But nonetheless, a year later, Theodora and Justinian were married. When Emperor Justin died two years later on August the 1st, 527, Theodora ascended even further. The brothel girl was now the Empress of the Eastern Roman Empire. From the start, Justinian treated his wife as an equal in not only their marriage, but in the power he wielded, which had slowly grown over the years as his uncle aged, now solidified under his new imperial rule. He never named her co-regent, but it was understood by all that Theodora did rule. Her name appeared on all the laws, she was responsible for receiving dignitaries, she had her own correspondence with fellow rulers, all duties usually reserved for the crown, Furthermore, her people were made to swear oaths of fealty in her name as well as her husband's. Her reach was to such an extent that some whispered that it was Empress who controlled Byzantine, not Emperor. The first taste of Theodora's power came early in Justinian's reign, during the Nica Revolt of 532. Constantinople was controlled by two factions, creatively titled the Blues and the Greens, who sponsored chariot races and plays in the Hippodrome and leveraged massive political power against each other. Think street gangs meets the DNC. Usually the group spent their days fighting against each other, but Justinian, who had been an efficient ruler up to this point, had been making very unpopular choices and was pushing reforms that were slow to take effect. He had levied high taxes against the population, reduced spending on civil services to combat the corruption in the system, and, most egregious of all, tried to curb the power of the Greens. Add to that that Justinian was lowborn, had just suffered a terrible defeat in the Iberian War, and was a Chalcedonian Christian, unlike the monophysite greens, and you had a powder keg of resentment. All it needed was a spark. Which they got in early January of 532. Before the new year had turned, a post-chariot race riot had turned deadly, and the murderers were convicted and marked for execution. Two of them, one blue and one green, escaped. Justinian commuted their sentences to imprisonment as a compromise, but blues and greens both demanded they be pardoned entirely. Justinian refused. He scheduled the next chariot race on the 13th and considered the matter finished. It was not. On the 13th, an angry crowd descended upon the Hippodrome, hurling invectives at the watching emperor and stirring each other into a frenzy until, as one voice, they demanded Nika, or victory. Their rage turned physical, and they besieged the palace, setting fires in their wake that would destroy much of the city and kill hundreds. Some senators saw an opportunity to overthrow Justinian, and soon the crowd had appointed a new emperor to replace him. All seemed lost, Justinian now set on fleeing the city, until his wife rose from her seat at the council table and put her foot down. No king should survive losing his crown, she said, and I will not be less than an empress. They would die as rulers, not exiles." Quote Theodora, If you wish to save yourself, my lord, there is no difficulty. We are rich, over there is the sea, and yonder are the ships. Yet reflect for a moment whether, when you have once escaped to a place of security, you would not gladly exchange such safety for death. Royal purple is the noblest shroud. Justinian was convinced, and together they devised a plan to convince the blues to abandon the greens in the hippodrome. Soldiers were sent in, and only soldiers came back out. Those members of the factions left in the Hippodrome were slaughtered indiscriminately, including, at Theodora's urging, the would-be Emperor Hypatius and the Turncloak Senators. In all, some 30,000 people were killed. After the revolt was put down, Justinian and Theodora essentially had free reign, pun intended. They quickly set to work rebuilding Constantinople, constructing bridges, aqueducts, and more than 25 churches, including the Hagia Sophia. According to Procopius, the rulers also became very strict in regards to court functions and ceremony, demanding that the noble class lower themselves to the ground to bow in their presence. It was important that they realized that emperor and empress were the masters, and they the servants. Theodora had her own interests separate from her husband. Chief among these was her concern for the rights of women, particularly those of the lower class. She knew how poorly prostitutes were treated by their pimps, and how hard it was for them to ever escape from such a life, and so set up a safe house for them in the capital. She pushed for laws that would ban brothels in Constantinople and all the major cities of the empire, and harsher punishments for rape, for those women already married Theodora wanted to be sure that they could get a divorce if they sought it, keep or obtain property outside of marriage, and retain guardianship of their children. In a way, Theodora was much kinder to the women of the masses than she was to the women of her own station. She worked incredibly hard to create her own power base in the empire. One of the ways she did this was to befriend key people in power, like the General Narses and the Prefect Peter Barsimes but another tactic of hers was to broker marriages between members of her family and members of the old nobility, the family of Emperor Anastasius, her coup de grace being the marriage of her own niece, Sophia, to the heir of the throne, Justin II. Some of these marriages, however, were very likely against the will of the brides. I imagine those women had a bitter taste in their mouths when they heard tales of the Empress's valiant efforts to free other women. Theodora took incredibly well to power it seemed to come to her naturally, not just the iron will, but the scheming underhandedness of it as well. When she wasn't championing women's rights at her convenience, she was ensuring the survival of the Monophysite faith. While Justinian tried to foster a unified Christianity under the Chalcedonian branch, Theodora founded Monophysite monasteries and protected members of the church from persecution. She hid one man in her quarters for 12 years, and at one time had eight monks housed in the Hormostas Palace in Constantinople. She even successfully outmaneuvered her husband's own pious ambitions on multiple occasions, most notably in Egypt, where she installed a monophysite pope. When Justinian finally deposed him, Theodore brought him to Constantinople and hid him as well. It's a credit to her influence and its lasting effect that when Justinian discovered this veritable menagerie of supposed heretics in one of his own households after her passing, he merely extended the protection his wife had offered under his name. Theodora was dedicated and powerful enough that she essentially decided the religious future of an entire kingdom. When Theodora heard her husband was sending missionaries to greet Silco, king of Nobate in 540, she wrote to the man who would host the Chalcedonians and politely recommended he delay them, giving her emissaries time to reach Silco first. The man smartly agreed with her request, and when Justinian's people finally did reach Nobate, they found the people there already converted. As monophysites. Religion was the one thing she ever truly found herself at cross-purposes to Justinian on. The emperor wrote once that he had consulted her extensively on reforms to combat corruption in the ranks of public officials. It's not hard to imagine, given the other evidence we have of Theodora's personal investments in other laws, her name printed bold across almost everything Justinian passed, that they worked that way together often. King and queen bent together over their papers, debating well into the night over this clause and that wording. The emperor's instincts all those years ago, meeting the beautiful wool spinner on the streets of Constantinople and knowing she would be his, was spot on. Then Theodora began to grow ill. Later, her affliction would be determined as cancer, most likely breast cancer. Then it was only known that she was getting weaker, under the attack of some malignant growth. Theodora succumbed to her illness on the 28th of June, 548, at around 50 years of age. She was survived by a husband, two sisters, nieces and nephews, and possibly a daughter. Her body was prepared and taken to the Church of the Holy Apostles in Constantinople, where she was buried in a tomb befitting the empress of the Byzantine Empire. Justinian would be laid to rest beside her after his own death 17 years later. After the Crusades and the invasion of the Ottoman Empire, much of what was in the church was lost, including Theodora's body. Along with her physical self, we also lost much of her memory as well. Theodora's reputation has gone through several revisions over the years, as historians bounced between different accounts. Her contemporary, Procopius, wrote three works, two that venerated her and one that demonized her. He went from admiring her piety and beauty to degrading her as Theodora from the brothel, who let geese fondle her body and married a headless demon. Unsurprisingly, it was this portrayal that people were fascinated by, and so much of her influence was seen negatively when it wasn't outright dismissed. But she was incredibly important, not just to Justinian, but to the Byzantine Empire as a whole. If she held sway over the emperor or worked alongside him, either way, she gathered and exercised enormous power to shape the way her people functioned in their day-to-day lives, especially women. Between her death in 548 and Justinian's in 565, Very little legislation of significance was passed by the Emperor, who would never remarry. Perhaps there was little to be done, or perhaps Theodora had been the driving force behind the Emperor, who never slept. To be frank, Theodora was cutthroat, ruthless. For her religion, she would undermine even her own husband. For her power, she would sell out even her own friends. When threats were made to her crown, she ordered an Emperor to stand his ground and respond with force. She was also a builder, a nurturer, a defender, and a progressive who empathized with the lower class even when she had the option of leaving them in the dirt. She is now recognized as a saint by the Greek Orthodox Church, and her grand cathedral, the Hagia Sophia, still stands to this day. You can find her face staring back at you in the mosaics of the Basilica of San Vitale, haloed in light and robed in purple. When you see her, remember, too, a lone woman in the deserts of Egypt— Tossed from an abusive home, toddler on her hip, hungry and penniless, seeing a group of peaceful people preaching on the horizon. A new start was there, a fresh future. A Theodora, risen from the ashes.